Our text this morning comes from Judges chapter 10 and 11. You'll notice it's not actually printed in your bulletin this morning. It's a little bit long, so you're going to, um, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. It's also uh, in the pew in front of you, you'll find one of our pew Bibles, and this begins on page 210. It's time for your Bible drill. Joshua Judges, Ruth, it's right in the middle there. And we're going to be starting actually in uh, chapter 10, verse 6. Let's pray as we get ready to come before uh, the Lord and His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have given us the gift of Scripture, that You have not left us wondering who You are and what You are like, but You have actually spoken to us. And here, even in the book of Judges, You've given us stories about You and about Your people that point to You and Your goodness to us. We pray now that You would speak to us through Your Word, that You would open our hearts, that we might receive what You have for us, that by your Spirit you would continue your good work of changing us, making us more and more into the image of your glorious Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. They said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites. 
But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be our, the witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then picking up in verse 29 of chapter 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow before the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, as far as Abel, Karamim with a great blow. And the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Well, if you're visiting with us for the first time today, we're in the middle of of a series on the book of Judges. Um, Each week we've been looking at different aspects of this book and coming again and again back to one main theme that runs right through the middle of the book. That the greatness of God's grace is seen in the depths to which it reaches. And each week we see those depths getting a little deeper and a little bit darker. And we come to this passage this morning, one of the most disturbing, I think, in the entire Bible. In fact, maybe second only to a passage we're going to look at in about three weeks from later on in the book of Judges. And it's one that's rightly, um, has rightly disturbed people and brought up a lot of questions. And those of you who are following Jesus, this is one of those passages where you think, why is this in the Bible? And this, things like this are exactly why I'm scared to tell my friends to read the Bible or come to church, because stuff like this gets brought up. Um, it is a, it's a dark it's a dark passage. We're used to, if you've been here this summer, we're used to seeing violence in the book of Judges. We're used to seeing conflict. For the first time, though, we see the greatest violence in this chapter coming against one of God's own people. We see a breakdown within the family of God. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. We're going to follow up 
with that issue more fully when we look at Judges 19 in a few weeks. Um, but, but there's one thing in particular that I want us to see this morning from, from this passage. We see a whole community of people who are going their own way and who are following after their own agendas for God. Um, there are people who have been called in a relationship with God, and in that sense, there are people with God. But there are people who are at the same time missing God. They've been called into the most intimate of relationships, into the most profound depths of relating with their God and Savior. And they go in the wrong direction time and again. So what I want to see um, this morning is just this point about agendas, that, that following God means giving up your agenda for your life in order that you can embrace God's agenda for your life. Following God means that we give up the agendas for our lives in order that we might actually follow God's agenda for our life. So we're going to take a look at three agendas in our passage this morning. We're going to look at Israel's agenda and Jephthah's agenda, and then we're going to look at God's agenda. So first, let's take a look at at the, the agenda of Israel, the people of Israel, and the situation that they're in. Once again, we find them in trouble. Once again, we find them in military oppression, and they're calling out for help. And their agenda for God is that he would come and rescue them. Now, it's interesting because in the middle of one of the darkest passages we've looked at so far, we see what seems like the most promising start. Look in verse 10 and verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. This is the first time in the book of Judges that we see the people using that word, of actually acknowledging what they've been up to and how it's affected their relationship with their God. We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. They go on in verse 15 and say to the Lord, We have sinned. Do whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. It's interesting because we see this actual honesty for them, a moment of really grappling with the situation they've gotten themselves into. They see it's not just a matter of the enemies that are oppressing them, that they're actually at odds with their God. But we start to also see an immediate switch from them. Okay? They begin in repentance. They immediately come back to their deeper agenda, which is for God to rescue them. Into verse 15, they say, Do whatever you want to us, but please show up today. Whatever it takes, show up today and deliver us. Now, if you've been kind of following the flow of Judges, you're going you're to notice maybe a, a real a, a subtle break in the pattern that we've seen each week. Each week we see the people fall away. We see them cry out in distress. And then we see God raise up for them a deliverer. Um, several weeks ago, Judges 3.9 says this, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Judges 3.15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. We talked about Deborah and Barak. We talked about God's people in distress and the elaborate process by which God raises up a deliverer. And there's no statement of that here. We see the people cry out. And then look what happens next in verse 17. The Ammonites are enemies. They're gathering together. Verse 18, the people, the leaders of of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They've come to God asking for rescue. In every other chapter we've seen, God has raised up a deliverer. But here we see them call out for rescue and then immediately start looking around 
Who can we raise up to be our Savior? Who can we pick to lead us to victory? And then in the next scene, we see them go to this guy Jephthah. We're going to talk about Jephthah more in a minute. But they go seeking out this one they've rejected in order to come back and save them. Instead of hearing of God raising up a deliverer for them, they've instead choose to raise up a deliverer for themselves. Now, for us, what are our own agendas for rescue? What are the ways in which we find ourselves crying out to God again and again to come and save us? Do you ever feel like your life is just one series of crisis and struggle after another? And you just go from the depths of one crisis to the depths of another. Uh, And it could be in a lot of different areas, whether that's your health. It's one struggle after another. Whether it's your relationships. It's one broken friendship. It's one strained family relationship. It's one marital spat after another. Maybe it's your work. It's one annoying coworker after another. It's one frustrated project after frustrated project. Maybe it's in your home one home crisis after another. For those of you that have small kids or remember it, maybe it's this. One week, it's teething and nobody sleeps. And the next week, it's nightmares and nobody sleeps. And the next week, it's ear infections and nobody sleeps. And you find yourself asking again and again, am I ever going to sleep again? (laughs) If you will only show up this one time, God, and give me eight hours, I will give you whatever you want. Uh, you know, you've seen uh, performers on TV in person, these guys that get up and start spinning plates on all the little sticks. And you think, surely they can't start spinning one more, and suddenly they've got 10 or 15. And what is the guy doing? He's running around and around, spinning plates. And where is his attention on all of those spinning plates? One to the next, to the next, to the next. Do you ever feel like your life is about that crisis one after another, and you never get to lift your eyes any further than the horizon of your next struggle because it's coming at you so fast. It's coming at you, and there are so many of them. And do you find yourself in a pattern where your relationship with God is essentially you crying out for relief and for relief and for relief from whatever that next struggle might be for you? Is this become the extent of your relationship with God? In fact like the people of Israel here, do you ever find yourself actually coming in repenting, coming in confession before God as one more tool to twist God's arm, to meet you in the middle of your crisis, and come and rescue you one more time? What do we want most? And so easily it's relief from the next thing. Okay, so those are the people of Israel, the elders of Gilead. Jephthah's also got an agenda, and I think his agenda is his reputation. Look at his background. This comes in the first few verses of chapter 11. Uh, He was the illegitimate son of a prostitute. He was rejected by uh, the full sons of his father. He was thrown out of their house because they didn't want to share their inheritance with him. Uh, Verse 7, when the elders of Gilead come to Jephthah to ask him to come back, he says, essentially, didn't you reject me? In other words, it wasn't simply the brothers who were casting him out, that the elders too, the whole community was implicated in them turning him out on his ear. Uh, Jephthah is what we would call a victim. He's had a hard life, and he's struggled. And what has he done? Well, 
what's his response? Essentially, it's this. I'll show them. Uh, chapter, or verse 3 of chapter 11 says that he, uh, Jephthah fled from his brothers, lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Um, those phrases, worthless fellows and going out with him, the image it's evoking is um, essentially dispossessed, frustrated people who become brigands, who become thieves, who begin to live on raiding the people around them. So he goes off and becomes sort of a paramilitary leader out in the hills and becomes this mighty warrior. In fact, it may well have been the people of Israel that he was raiding against with these worthless fellows who come his way. And uh, then we see him suddenly in this moment of possible restoration. Right, His people are now behind the ball. They're now under attack. And they come hat in hand to seek Jephthah and ask him to come back. And Jephthah plays hardball with them. And they come to him, um, if you look at their original offer to the people of Israel in verse 18, they say, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Then in verse 6 of chapter 11, when they actually come to Jephthah, this uh, son of a prostitute whom they have driven away, they say, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. They've changed their offer. They're offering for him to be the head of their, of their region. Instead, they come to him and essentially say, come be our general for this battle. Come bring us some military relief. Uh, and Jephthah doesn't let him get away with this. Verse 7, he says, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Why have you come to me? You're going to have to come with a better offer than that. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead say to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. The elders finally put all their cards on the table. Okay, you come, you will be our head, and Jephthah drives it home. Verse 9, if you bring me home to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And they say, all right, we agree before the Lord that that's what's going to happen. See, Jephthah, He's been rejected, and what does he have now? The opportunity for reputation, in a sense for revenge, to come to power, to be someone in the midst of a people who thought that he was nothing. And then we see uh, Jephthah immediately beginning to try to recruit God to his own agenda as well, attempting to manipulate God into accomplishing his own agenda. Um, We look at this sacrifice that he promises. Look over in verse 29 of chapter 11. And see a contrast here. Verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall be the Lord's, and I'll offer it up as a uh, burnt sacrifice. Jephthah does does exactly what any of his pagan neighbors would have done. He says, this is what I most want, and I will offer to you what is most precious to me in order to get it. Whatever comes out of my door will belong to you. And there's at least two or three tragedies in the life of Jephthah right here. The first one is that he attempts to wrestle something from God that he's already been given. He attempts to get this blessing from God, God's presence, the promise of victory when God has already given him his presence. Again, look in verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah, and he doesn't know God well enough to recognize it. 
He doesn't know that God has already shown up in his life to deliver his own people, that he's already with him. He can't see it, so he thinks he has to manipulate God instead. And he ends up offering what is an inappropriate sacrifice to get something that God already intended to give. And the second tragedy is for his daughter. She is um, truly a victim in this passage. She is the one who comes out in joy to greet her father. She comes out singing over the joy over this military victory they've won. And what does Jeff to do? He tears his robe and he says, you brought great sadness upon me. You have brought utter destruction on me because now I'm going to have to sacrifice you. She's victimized by this misplaced allegiance of um, Jephthah's. If Jephthah knew God better, he would know that God himself had prohibited uh, human sacrifice. It it comes up at least twice in the book of Leviticus in chapter 18 and chapter 20. He would have known that there are certain ways that God has called us to worship him and certain ways that he hasn't. And instead of following the God as he's revealed himself to to his people... He follows God the way the rest of his pagan neighbors do. And his daughter is the one who pays the price. Now, this whole issue of of her weeping for her virginity. In ancient Israel and for the people around them, their picture of living on was, was intimately wrapped up in their descendants, in their children, the people who would carry on their memory from one generation to the next, the people who would carry on their line and their family. And what happens? Jephthah's rash vow that he intended to secure his reputation, that he intended to secure his deliverance, actually ends up betraying him because it involves now the sacrifice of his only daughter. And when she dies, so does his family line. So does his memory. So does his reputation. In the middle of going outside the bounds of what God had called him to, to secure life for himself, instead he finds death, both for his daughter and ultimately for himself and for his family line. And then the most ominous of silences in in the book of Judges. um, If you look over in chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a city in Gilead. This is the first time in the book of Judges that we haven't seen a story end with the line that says, and the land had rest for many years. There's no promise of rest. There's no promise of extended deliverance. All we get is is Jephthah defeating this one enemy, sacrificing his daughter, dying six years later, and leaving the nation in the same wretched situation that they were in to begin with. Israel has an agenda. Jephthah has an agenda. Let's look last at God's agenda. Look at his response in uh, chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. The Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you? He lists all these enemies that he has continually saved his people from. Verse 13, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. God responds to them in sarcasm. If this feels biting and harsh to you, it should. And it should have to them as well. What's God saying? I'm not, I'm not your emergency button. I'm not 911 that you dial every time you find yourself in a situation that you can't handle. I'm not a convenient tool for you to use to accomplish your own agendas. You see, God's telling them 
that he's not simply rescuing them from something when he shows up to deliver them from his enemies. He's rescuing them to something. He's bringing them out of oppression by their enemies that they might come back into relationship with themselves. God's agenda for his people is that they would be in the most intimate of relationships with him. It's not simply to show up and deliver them from enemies. It's to show up that they might have real life, that they might have real connection with their God and Savior. And he accuses them here in this passage. He says, you want all these specific things from me, but you don't want me. Uh, my wife Elizabeth went with some friends this week and saw the movie The Devil Wears Prada. And she told me about a scene where there's this girl who's gotten caught up in the world of high fashion. She's the assistant to uh, you know, the, the one who's in charge of this whole company. And it's wrecking her personal life. And there's a scene where she's sitting with her boyfriend and she's apologizing to him because her job has come in, the, in between their relationship one more time. She's in the process of apologizing. She's in the process of telling him that she loves him in the process of saying that I'll be there for you now. And her cell phone rings, and it's her boss. And she has to answer the phone again. And the boyfriend turns to her and says, that's what really matters to you. That's the relationship that has the hold of your heart. And that's exactly what God is saying to his people here. You use me at convenient times, but your heart is not with me. I think what's interesting about Jephthah and what's interesting about the people of Israel and their agendas is not that they want too much, but they want too little. Uh, you may be familiar with the C.S. Lewis quote from, the, from his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's essentially God's point with them as well. You are far too easily pleased. You're chasing after these other gods. You're chasing after your reputation. And you're missing my agenda for your life, which is relationship with you. I was trying to think of a metaphor that maybe help, grasp, help us grasp this. Uh, the best one I could come up with conveniently it's one the Bible uses all the time, is, uh, is marriage. It's the most intimate, it's the most intense, it's the most glorious of human relationships. And if you've been to a wedding, especially recently, maybe again you've been astounded at what men and women say to each other when they stand up to take their vows. Um, I've had the privilege of, of doing three weddings, and we've got a couple more coming up in our church soon, and it amazes me what we say in public. Here's... you. If you're married yourself, you said something like this. I take you to be my wife, to be my husband, to have and hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we're parted by death. What are people saying when they stand up and take those outrageous vows? They're saying, I want you. Whatever else comes in life, I want you. If life brings me poverty, I can take it because I'm going to be with you. If life brings us sickness, if life brings us struggle, if life brings us anything, I want to do it with you. If it comes down to it, I would rather suffer with you than prosper without you. 
people stand up and say that and promise to live in that with each other. They say it to their friends, to their family, and they mean it. Why? Because for the first time in their lives, they've found something outside of themselves that they love more than themselves. They've found something that's really captured their hearts. They've found a joy not in pursuing their own welfare, but in pursuing the welfare of someone else. They have found a pearl of great price, and they're willing to give anything else in order to have it. Now, here's the thing. We all break our marriage vows every day. None of us live up to that. None of us love our spouse the way we've promised to. God has said to his people, I desire the most intimate of relationships with you. I desire for you to be my people. I desire for you to give up all of your other agendas and get on board with mine that you might know me and find yourself whole in me. And like an unfaithful spouse, we go in the other direction. We find ourselves chasing again after our own agendas. Have you noticed that Jephthah, in one sense, was profoundly right He sensed that something was wrong. He sensed that he needed a sacrifice. He sensed that there was something that stood between him and God. But here's also what was wrong with Jephthah's sacrifice. Not only was it one that was forbidden by God, it was forbidden because of this reason. Not because it was too great, but because it was too small. Jephthah knew he was in need of something, but he didn't know how much he really needed. And all of us, called in a relationship with God, called to abandon our other agendas, to follow after God's agenda for us, that we might know him, that we might walk in relationship with him, are people also in need of sacrifice. We are also people who are in need of rescue. And we need a greater sacrifice than we can provide, just like Jephthah did. God condemns his sacrifice because it wasn't enough. We need someone who really is greater. We need someone who really can bridge the gap. We need someone who really can be faithful in our stead. We need a spouse who is faithful to us. That's why the Bible, time and again, uses the image of marriage to talk about Christ being married to us as people. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who rescues us. He is the one who fulfills the vows for us that we might be faithful ourselves. And it is only the gospel, the truth that we find our forgiveness in Jesus, that's going to free you to let go, to take your uh, clenched fist off of your own agendas, to let go of all those other things that you're grasping onto um, with such desperation. It's the only thing that's going to free you to actually embrace God's agenda for your life, which is to know him, to be in relationship with him, You need this kind of life-transforming relationship with Jesus more than you need good health, more than you need financial security, more than you need for your life to go your way. You need Jesus more than you need for your kids to turn out well, more than you need to feel happy, more than you need a a fulfilling life and job. You need Jesus to show up in this way in your life more than you need a happy marriage, the affirmation of your parents, or to live happily ever after. You see, if our hope is in our situation, then we're never going to be at peace. There's always going to be the next thing. There's always going to be the next struggle. 
There's always going to be the next sickness. There's always going to be the next thing that your kids do. There's always going to be the next disappointment in life. Those things can't rescue you. But in Jesus, we find real hope. Because we find somebody that actually transcends our agendas. We find somebody that gives us a life that comes from relationship with him rather than having everything in our lives turn out the way we want them to. We trade our desperate grasping to make our life work for trust of a God who is at work in our lives. And we trade our own agendas for Jesus who says this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are a people who have our agendas. Forgive us for wanting those things more than we want you. And we thank you, Father, that you don't leave us to those, that you want something better and greater and deeper and more lasting for us, that we would actually be in relationship with you, that we would know the love of you, our God and our Father that we would experience the forgiveness that comes through your Son, Jesus. Father, forgive us for wanting things that are too dull and too small and too dead. May we instead fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who goes before us and the one who, in fact, holds on to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.